chapter 27. How many of you guys have read ahead? Anybody? Five, six. Woo, we're breaking records now. Uh, any of you who are interested in, we're, we're going to be in this journey tonight. Uh, Paul, you remember, has left Caesarea where he was in prison for two years, or he at least was in custody for two years. And the journey from Caesarea to Rome normally took five weeks. It's going to take him seven months. Uh, so it's a remarkable record again. Um, scholars, seamen have said the accuracy and the detail in Luke's, you know, his, his definitions and his details is unsurpassed in ancient records. And uh, we find as we go into this, it's really amazing. Now, I like boats. I just don't like being out on the ocean. So that's a bad combination of things. Uh, my dad was kind of a remarkable guy, um, quit high school to go into the Navy in World War II, got his GED in the Navy, and came back and stayed with the Naval Department and worked at the Philadelphia Shipyard, and for the last 20-some years, he was head loftsman in charge of all the blueprints with a high school diploma in the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard. They sent him all over the country just... So he was always great to talk to when I was in a storm or I was somewhere like this. And uh, it's just so interesting. He would talk about displacement. He would tell me about speckled backscatter, just all of this stuff. Uh, we, I remember we moved in 1957 in Ronhurst. And two years later, all the neighbors came and said, you know, the FBI came and said, what time does Mr. Foch go? What time does he come home? Is he regular? Do you ever see him with foreigners? Do you ever, you know? So interesting, uh, interesting season in life. He, uh, he now, I'm sure, my dad is talking to Luke about this chapter. And uh, we'll be joining them soon. <clears throat> so Paul is leaving Caesarea to head to... Rome. Uh, the Lord told him in chapter 23, verse 11, when he was in the Antonio Fortress there in custody, <clears throat> he said, Paul, you must also give testimony in Rome. So he had that in his heart, <clears throat> and he knew that. They take a smaller ship. He has a centurion named Julius, <clears throat> who's in charge of his custody, no doubt there's soldiers with them also. Luke is with him, and Aristarchus is with him. And they begin down in Caesarea, and they go on up to Sidon. From Sidon, they go on up on the north side of Cyprus, down here, up above Cyprus, because there's wind, and it was better there. It says they were leeward. It was better then they come around here to Myra, if you remember last week, where we met St. Nick there. And uh, from there, uh, they, they come around here to this point to depart, and they want to get down to Crete um, as they go there. Um, Salmon Thrace on this end that they'll pass. You guys with me over there? They come down to Crete. And uh, they're in a port called Fair Havens there. They want to come around to this end of the island of Crete. Want to come around to this end right here. We call it Phoenix or Phoenice. Uh, because it was a better port and they realized they're going to be there for three to four months through the winter. Paul, you remember, tells them, I got a bad feeling about this. You know, he's already been in three shipwrecks. He tells already been in the deep a day and a half, day and a night. It, he understands the sea. I don't know whether he was talking with Luke, who seems very familiar. Luke had to train uh, through the Roman Empire, the Mediterranean world, and then finally uh, Collegium Equatorium in Rome to get his medical degree so he'd be licensed throughout the empire. So he must have spent a good amount of time on the sea too, particularly by the lingo he uses here. And uh, Paul said, let's, let's not do this. I got a bad feeling about it. 
But it tells us then in verse 11, nevertheless, the centurion believed the master, literally the steersman, kind of the captain, and the owner, which would either be the owner or a representative of the owner of the ship, more than those things which were spoken by Paul. So the centurion's thinking, do I believe sailors? Do I believe a tent maker? What do I do here? And uh, of course, he lines up then with Paul to head to the other end of Crete for a, a better winter. And it's about 40 miles to make that journey. <clears throat> and that's where the problem is going to begin. Remember, they're on a grain ship, um, 180 foot long, 45 foot across, one main mast in the center of the ship that went 44 foot below deck to the keel, remarkable, remarkable. I don't know the exact displacement because of the weight of the wheat. It's in sacks, no doubt. They just didn't dump loose wheat in there and have to shovel it out with a wheelbarrow or something. It's in sacks. And Egypt was the wheat supplier of Rome. That was the Roman field for harvesting wheat was Egypt. So these big Egyptian grain ships from Alexandria would go on up to Rome. Sailing from September, the end of September through November 11th was dangerous and not recommended. From November 11th into March, it was basically forbidden. But because the Caesars, Claudius at this point in time, wanted the wheat to continue to come to Rome through the winter, they guaranteed any of these people that own ships uh, that they were, they were insured. So if they lost crew, if they lost the ship itself, if they lost the whole load of grain, they were completely reimbursed and refinanced to get back. That's how desperately Caesar wanted the grain to continue, even through weather that no one should have been sailing in. So it says here then, <clears throat> and because the haven was not commodious to winter in, wasn't the, uh, the accommodations weren't what they would have appreciated, the more part advised to depart from there if by any means they might attain unto Phoenice, Phoenix and there to winter, which is a haven of Crete, and it lieth towards the southwest and northwest. So it says it lies at this end of the island of Crete towards the southwest, northwest. Evidently, there's an island in the middle so that the access is both from the southwest and from the northwest coming into this, island, this end of the island of Crete. So it says, and then it says, when the south wind blew softly, and always look out, if you haven't listened to Paul, when the south wind blows softly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, like the SS Minnow, <clears throat> their purpose loosing from there, and they sailed close by Crete. So they, they, loo they, they loose from Fair Havens, they're coming around and they're sailing close to the coast of Crete to come around to this port. Now the mountains on Crete reach 8,000 foot in elevation. So occasionally they come around this end through Crete here, 8,000 foot in elevation. So the wind sometimes will just drop down there on them. So they start out and it says there's a south wind. Okay, you got that? It's blowing from the south up. They think this is great. We can get around this end. South winds in our sails. That's a good, good omen for us. It's a good wind, a, a warm south wind coming to take them up to that port. Verse 14, where we kind of come to, starts with the word but. That's never a good idea if you're a sailor and you're enjoying the south wind. It says, but now. Not long after, there arose a tempestuous wind. That's not good. A tempestuous 
wind called a Eurocladin or Eurocladin, whatever you want to call it. When you're in one, you don't care if it's a Eurocladin or Eurocladin. It's a hurricane. <clears throat> and when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, they let her drive. So they're, they're trying to get over this end of the island. Okay? And what happens now that a south wind, now all of a sudden your rockladin is coming from this direction. It's blowing down this way, and it's going to blow them down to this tiny island of Clauda there underneath of it. Okay? The wind has changed from coming up from the south, coming down this way, and it's going to drive them away from Crete to this little island, Clauda, that is there. So it says this is a tempestuous wind, um, tufonikos in the Greek, where we get our word typhoon from. And typhoon in the Greek looked towards a, a, a deity, a Greek deity that was in charge of wind and storms on sea. That's how they, they began to call it by that name. And it says this tempestuous, this typhoon, is also called a Eurocladin, which is made from two, two words. The Euro part of it in the front is a Greek word that means from the east. And the second half of it, the Ocladin, is from the Latin, which means northeast. So what it tells us is this storm is east-northeast. East, it's coming that way. And you know what a nor'easter is. When we have a nor'easter around here, it's bad news. When you have one out there on an Egyptian grain ship, it's bad news. Uh, I don't like them on the ground, let alone out on the ocean. So this storm now comes up, and it says when the ship was caught, it could not bear up into the wind because when that kind of wind is blowing, they like to try to keep the bow into the wind. And it says, it says, when we couldn't keep the ship into the wind, which would be windward, we, look, Luke, this is a, you know, he's eyewitness to this. He, he's including himself. We let her drive. So what happened was they couldn't keep the ship headed into this nor'easter coming down, so they just let her turn around, and then the wind to them, instead of being you know, windward, they call it leeward then, is pushing from the back, and then they just let the ship drive in the wind because they couldn't keep it faced in the direction that they wanted. So uh, people who travel at sea understand, you know, the, the right side of the ship is uh, port, the left side is starboard, you have the transom in the back. The leeward wind comes in that direction. Windward comes from the front. In fact, you guys know Posh? Anybody ever hear Posh? Nobody? Posh. Somebody. What's Posh? Me and you. We're the only two people in the room with Posh. Posh means expensive. It means fancy. Oh, now you all woke up, right? It's actually from nautical word when the British wanted to sail around the, the horn of South Africa. The wealthy ones on the way out always wanted their rooms facing the afternoon sun. And when they came back, they wanted facing the afternoon sun. So because they were wealthy, they could always order their rooms port side out starboard side home, which is where we get posh. And it became a picture of the wealthy being able to have what they want. This is important for you to know. Port side out, starboard side home. That'll help you remember which side of the ship we're talking about here. So they let her drive now. And remarkably, we let her drive. And running under a certain island, which is called Clauda, which is hard to see on here. It's right down under Crete. It's right there, running under this, this certain island called Clauda. It's right under there. It says, we, we had much work to come by the boat. So what it's saying here is when they came down under Clauda, 
they're letting the wind leeward now just drive them because they can't maneuver into it. And they always drug a dinghy, you know, a lifeboat, but they let it in the water. It was always kind of towed behind the ship because of the sails and so forth. So it says, we brought in that boat with much labor because no doubt it had been filled with water. And, and Luke says it was hard. They were pulling on a rope to try to get, you know, when you're in, the, when you're in your Lachlan and you like to have the light boat with you. And uh, so it says there's much labor now. They're working. They're trying to get that boat and they get it drawn up to the deck, which when they had taken up, then it says, look, they used helps undergirding the ship Fearing lest they should fall into the quicksands, they strake sail and so were driven. Isn't that wonderful? He tells us here, when they had taken up the lifeboat, they're being driven now. And the problem is when you had one main sail, one main mast in the middle of that wooden boat, in a storm like that, it would begin to loosen up the keel and the boards on the side of the ship, and it would start to leak. So what they would do is called frapping. They would take long cables, ropes, and let them go under the bow of the boat and pull them back, and then tie them together with winches in the middle of the boat. That's called frapping. It's holding the boat together. That's not good when you're in a storm, frapping. They don't go together. That's not a good thing when you're out at sea and they're tying the boat together. Uh, so Luke is using all of these terms that, that were so familiar in that world. He, he says, they started undergirding the ship. Now look, it says, fearing lest they should fall into the quicksands. It's not quicksands. It's a particular word, and it's talking about the sandbars that are about 350 miles south of Crete on the north side of Tripoli in Africa and so forth. They're, they're here. They're there. And they were sandbars, not quicksand, uh, because of the way the currents came off the point. They weren't real visible, but shipwreck after shipwreck after shipwreck took place there. So all those who sailed that part of the world were completely aware. And, he, and they're saying now that, they, they, you know, we're going to find out. They got no compass, of course. They, they can't navigate by the stars or the sun. They're being driven by the storm. And they take down, they're going to take down the sail. And they're tying the boat together because they don't want to be driven that far south and end up wrecking the ship in the ocean. Normally, no survivors when they hit those sandbars. So it says, fearing lest they should fall into the sandbars, they strake the sail. They took down the sail, and this would be the main sail in the middle of the boat. It's funny, it's the same word that's used when Peter saw this large sheet let down from heaven with four quarters. So it's no doubt the main sail. And it says, they took that down, and so were Driven, No doubt they kept on the front of the boat a small storm sail, a foresail. Uh, that at least kept the front of the boat moving, at least driven with the wind, moving them at least towards the west, hoping they wouldn't go too far south and hit those sandbars. And it says, and we, Luke including himself now, we being exceedingly tossed... You don't want to be exceedingly tossed when you're out on the ocean. We were being exceedingly tossed with a tempest. The next day, it was so bad, they lighted the ship. They made it lighter. They wanted less displacement. They wanted to get the ship up so that it wouldn't hit sandbars if they came that far south. It says, they lighted the ship. And the third day, we, here's Luke here, part of this, he says, we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. Now, they all have to pitch in. And what he's talking about is the yard iron or the spar. 
on a, on a big old ship like that, you had the main mast, and then you had a long wooden spar that went across that the, the mast hung on. And in a storm like this, it says they strike the sail, they would take down that long spar, that yard on, and sometimes it was 180 foot long, as long as the boat. And they would just lay it then across the deck. They're saying here, they're trying to get rid of the, the weight in the ship, and this spar, this yard on, weighed so much that it took all of them and they got it off the ship, which lighted the ship again. So you can imagine uh, all of this going on. They're getting the tackling overboard. And look in verse 20. And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared... What he's saying is they have no bearings. They've lost their bearings. No sun, no stars. And you don't want to hear no sun, no stars, and many days in the same sentence. No sun, no stars, in many days. And then Luke says, and no small tempest. Weren't no small one. It was only a big one. That's the way of saying it was only a big tempest because there weren't any small ones. No small tempest lay on us, look what he says here, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. It's interesting, an imperfect passive. It, it was removed and it remained gone and it happened by itself and there was nothing we could do about it. Luke says, we, all hope was lost. We, he says, we lost all hope. Hope, no small tempest laid upon us. Um, all hope that we should be saved was taken away. That means Luke had no hope. Aristarchus had no hope. It means Julius the centurion and his soldiers, no hope. It means the steersman who they listened to in the first place they shouldn't have, no hope. The owner of the ship, no hope. Paul the Apostle? We're not sure. We're not sure because in verse 24, when the angel appears to him, he's going to say, Paul, fear not. So we don't know where his hope was, but his courage was gone. So this is a terrible storm. It's hard, again, hard to imagine. I have my own storm story. I tell it once in a while, but I don't like the ocean. My grandfather came across the North Atlantic in a sailboat from Romania, if you can imagine. I said, Grandpa, did you come into Ellis Island? He said, no, we just crashed on shore somewhere in New Jersey. <laughs> so here it says, all hope was lost. It was taken away. We had no sense at all we're going to be saved. But after long abstinence, they're fasting. Nobody's eaten for a while. That's because they were all hurling, I'm sure. Nobody wants to eat when they're seasick. After long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, you should have hearkened unto me and not have loosed from Crete and to have gained harm and loss. Now, it sounds like he's saying, I told you so. He's not really because he's setting the stage to say an angel appeared to me and told me this. You didn't listen to me the first time. We have some good news. Let's do this now. So they're all sick. Nobody has been eating for a long time. Uh, the, the, you know, when you're flying, it's what goes up must come down. But when you're sailing, it, it's what goes down must come up. So he, he says here, you shouldn't, when we, you know, you loose from creek from fair havens. I told you not to do it. And now all of this harm, all of that, this loss, and now, wonderful, and now, I exhort you to be of good cheer. No sun, no stars, everybody's sick. It's October, it must be freezing. He's saying, cheer up. Now I exhort you, because Paul has his bearings. 
He doesn't need the sun or the stars to get them. He has his bearings. We can too in our storms. And now I exhort you, be of good cheer. The reason for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, just a ship. <laughs> oh, good. That's what I see here when you're out in the midst of the ocean. Everybody's going to make it except the ship. How do they go together? What do you do with those ideas? Going to be no loss, he says, for, here's his reason, there stood by me this night. Now it says the angel of God, the Greek is, there stood by me this night an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve. Now he's talking, besides Aristarchus and Luke, he's talking to, there's 276 people on board, he's talking to over 270 unbelievers, idolaters involved with the Greek and Roman pantheons, and he's saying, look, the God I, who's, who I serve, whose I am, his angel talked to me tonight. His spirit, the spirit, he sent a spirit to talk to me. And it's wonderful, he says, you know, he said, the God, he says here, whose I am and whom I serve. And I think so much of my life I'm still learning. I can only really serve him to the degree that I'm his, whose I am. Then <laughs> who, who I serve comes easy whose I am. Because I want to be, Lord, can we work out a deal? 30% Joe, 70% God. You know, just, you know, you know. It, it, how about 95%? You, you, Lord, 97% and 3%, you know. But he wants faithfulness. You get married. You don't say to your wife, look, 95% faithful, No, you, you pledge faithfulness, you know. And Paul's saying, I'm his. I'm his. That's how, that's how I can serve him. I'm his. I'm the one who made the earth and the seas and the storms and the ships who taught sailors. And that one whose I am and whom I serve sent his angel to talk to me tonight. So cheer up. No, no, he, he kind of couched that in, you should have listened to me, I told you this was going to happen. So there's a little more credence in what he's saying now. And we're going to see now Julius is no longer listening to the captain or the owner. He's listening to Captain Paul now as this moves forward. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God, definite article, the one God, the God whose I am and whom I serve, saying, this angel said, Fear not, Paul. Thou must be brought before Caesar. Now, interesting thing is the angel's adding information. The Lord told him when he was in the, the, the Antonia Fortress, you must testify in Rome. Street witnessing, you know, what, you know. Now the angel gets more specific and says, you must stand before Caesar. You're going to stand before Nero, so you can't die in the ocean. You're going to stand before Caesar. Had he kind of been shaken a little from the promise, you're going to testify in Rome in chapter 23, 11. This is so terrible. Luke says, we, we all lost hope. This angel comes to him and says, fear not, Paul. He was at least afraid. We know that. He says, thou must be brought. There's no option. Thou, you must be brought before Caesar. And lo, lo, that's more than a behold, lo. God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Now, we're assuming, I'm assuming that's an answer to Paul's prayer. He's been praying. The, the given thee there is a Greek phrase that means given as a gift to give graciously, uh, to, to bestow on someone. And, and the angel says to him here, God hath given thee as a gift all them 
that sail with thee. Because he had to be praying, Lord, Dr. Luke, I, I don't know what's going to go down here. He told me I'm going to get to Rome, but I don't want to lose the doc. He's been so much help. And Aristarchus has been with me from the beginning. And this Julius character, he seems like a nice guy. You know, he, you know, he must have been praying for the crew, praying for the soldiers. And God finally says through the angel, you're going to get to Rome. You're going to stand in front of Caesar and all those here on board. God has given to you as a gift. Man, I hope there's somebody like that praying for me. Don't you? You got a grandma, you got an uncle, you got somebody sometimes that drives you crazy. He prays for you all the time. Praise the Lord. God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, Paul talking to those on deck now, be of good cheer. The reason for I believe God that's a good reason for us to be of good cheer. You watch the news, be of good cheer. We believe God. You see what's going on morally in our nation, be of good cheer. We believe God. You see what's going on militarily in the world, be of good cheer. We believe God. You, you see the insanity in, in politics and, you know, the, the rulers of nations and countries, you know, being denigrated and breaking down morally. Be of good cheer. We believe God. He said all these things would happen. We believe God. Jesus Christ could come tonight. This end with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and a shout. And the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And the rest of us alive will be caught up to meet. Paul says we. He was expecting it. We'll be caught up to meet, to meet them in the Lord. So shall we ever be. Paul himself. We ever be with the Lord. Wherefore comfort one another with these words. Paul says I had a supernatural experience. Angel told me. Be of good cheer. I believe it. I believe the God that spoke to me that it shall be even as it was told me. But, here's another one, we must, there's no option here, God's sovereignty, we must be cast upon a certain island. Not any old island. We must be cast upon a certain island. Be of cheer, nobody's going to die Everybody's going to live. No one's going to be lost. We're going to lose the ship. But the angel who spoke to me came from the God whose I am and who I serve. And I believe him. I'm not doubting. The word of God is a foundation for my life and for all of us. When the storms come and the wind blows, if we build our house upon the rock, rock of ages for me. Let me hide myself in thee. We must. Now this is chapter 28. We're going to see why that must happen. We must be cast upon a certain island because God loves some people there and it's hard to get an apostle missionary to that little island. So just changes the world around. He says, but when the 14th night was come and we were driven up and down, I don't like night, I don't like driven up and down in a storm, in the Adria, okay, now, Adriatic Sea is up here, but this whole area in the south, they called the Adria, okay? You'll see Adriatic Sea, they called this whole area the Adria, that part of the Mediterranean. So they're, be dri they're being driven across there. He says, by the Adria, he says, about midnight, the shipmen deemed that they drew near to some country. They drew near to land. So they are at this point... 14 days are over here by Malta. See it? They've drifted all the way over here, being driven with just a little sail up front, the wind. They're over by Malta. Uh, again, if you, the, the, the sailors, the maritime people that figure this out, they were probably going a mile to a mile and a half an hour with a small sail being driven by the wind, which is 30 to 36 miles a day. 
And that type of uh, process, you're moving at that speed, it would take 14 days to get from Crete to Malta. So just for information, you want to know that. It says, now, it says they sounded and they found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little further, they sounded again and found it to be 15 fathoms. So they're perceiving there's land. It's dark. There's no light. Many times what would happen, these sailors would smell land. They knew. They could smell it. But the wind is leeward, and it's going, the, the lee is towards the land, so it's not coming to them. But the other way they were new, they could hear the breakers, and sometimes even at night they could see the white foam shooting in the dark. So these guys who, who have sailed the sea for a long time, uh, you know, it seems that they hear the sound of the breakers. So they know there's land, there's rocks, it's dangerous. They know there's something near. So knowing that, they start then to sound. They didn't have any sonar, they didn't have any depth devices. So they would take a rope, and it had like a, a stone or a lead weight on the end of it, and they would lower it down. A fathom was six foot. So the first time they take the depth, it's 120 foot deep. What they would do when they sounded is in the bottom of the stone or the lead weight, they would hollow it out and they would put fat in there or some type of lard so that when it hit the bottom and they pulled it up, if it was sand stuck in there, they knew they were probably near land somewhere or gravel. They might have known they were out a little deeper. They go a little further and they sound a second time and now instead of being 20 fathoms, 120 foot deep, now it's only 15 fathoms. They're pulling up sand. They know they're getting close to land. So they're sounding. They're, they're doing this. And it says, And as the shipmen, the sailors, were about to flee out of the ship. They could hear the breakers. They knew the, 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 the water was getting more shallow. When they had let down the boat, now you remember the boat, right? That they drug into the back of the ship. They let down the boat into the sea. Now, King James is under color. The idea is they're acting, they're deceiving, they're, they're, you know, they're pretending. They let down the boat into the sea under color as though they would have cast anchors out of the foreship that they they you know they they let anchors go now the thing you did in this and it's perfect here the way it's described in verse 29 they're fearing because of the way when they're sounding it's getting more shallow Luke eyewitness verse 29 we fearing we should have fallen upon the rocks they could hear the breakers they cast four anchors out of the stern, the back of the ship, over the transom, and they wished for day. So they got these four anchors out the back, hoping that it, it stops them or at least drags a little. They have the one foremast up, which keeps the, the ship pointed towards the land um, without dragging down the whole center mast. And these sailors kind of know the predicament, so they take the boat and they say, hey, we're going to go and we're going to put two, you know, anchors on the front of the boat to keep it straight in the water. And it says they're, they're being deceptive as they do that. And Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, except these abide in the ship, you're not going to be saved. If all the sailors split what are we going to do here? You guys are soldiers and, you know, we got guys that work on grain here. But if all the sailors leave, we're in trouble. You cannot be saved. Then the soldiers, <laughs> they cut off the ropes of the boat. They cut the rope, let the boat fall, and they let her fall off. Captain Paul is in charge and Julius is taking orders from him at this point in time. And they cut off that boat. If the sailors had gotten away, who knows how many would have died. It wasn't the Lord's plan. So as they cut those ropes, Ephesians is written, Philippians is written, Colossians is written, Philemon is written. Just imagine. They cut the ropes. They let her fall off. 
And while the day was coming on, it's beginning to get light, Paul besought them all to take food, all to take meat, saying, this day is the 14th day that you have tarried and continued fasting and have taken nothing. Imagine, that's really seasick, 14 days, and you're tired from working. They, they just meet, you just figure it's cold. They kind of be wasted. And Paul says now, he says, this is the 14th day. I want you to eat something. Wherefore, I pray you to take some food, for this is for your health. You need this now, for there shall not a hair fall from the head of any of you. Because all of those loose hairs had fallen out probably by day four. You know, there's not a hair that's going to fall from your head in this present situation. And when he had thus spoken, Paul, he took bread, he gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. So Paul now takes bread. It's just getting light. It's still hard to see. The ship is being tossed. They got anchors out the back. They got a little storm sail up, the foresail up. And Paul now wants them to eat. So Paul gets bread and says grace. That's what it says here. Paul gave thanks. He's got this is a dream for him in some way. He's got over 270 unbelievers around him. He's got an evangelist heart, and he's saying grace to the God who they're finding out is not Apollo, is not Zeus, it's not all the false gods that people worship. Somehow when people get in a storm, many of them figure out who the real God is. He gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat in front of them, you know. And, and they then, then were they all of good cheer. They're encouraged. And they also took some of the food. So as Paul gives thanks, he starts to eat. You know, I, I believe in God. He spoke to me. We're going to make it. They all get encouraged by him. Look, it, sometimes it only takes one person to speak to another hundred or two hundred and say, look, this is what God's word says. This is what's going to happen. I believe God. I believe what his word says. And you can encourage five or ten or twenty or a hundred. I believe God. This is what's going to happen. Let's bow our hearts. Let's partake. Let's and he says grace. And then when they saw him start to eat, they all started to eat. Then they were all of good cheer. They all took some of the food. And Luke says, when we were all in the ship, and there were 200, three score and 16 of us, 276 of us. And when they had eaten enough, I don't know how much is enough when you're feeling like that. When they had eaten enough, then they lighted the ship and they cast out the wheat, as we know it's a grain ship, into the sea. So they know that ahead of them, they see some light. They know they're pulling up sand as, as they sound. So they're hoping then, as they get in, the sun comes up, the light, they gets light, that they can drive the ship into the sand somewhere. On the rocks, you're gone. You're destroyed. So it says now they're making the ship lighter, you know, the displacement changes and, and the ship rises then in the water. <clears throat> and it says, and when it was day, they knew not the land. It means they, they didn't know it was Malta. They saw it, but it, they didn't know where they were. But they discovered a certain creek with a shore into which they were minded, if it were possible, to thrust in or drive in the ship. So it says they discovered there a certain creek. Um, the idea is an in inlet. It's part of a bay. It's, it's actually from the Greek word that means bosom. And it has a picture of a nursing child laying between his mother's breast. There's a place in there. And they saw that. And they knew that was, that was sand. They, they said it was a creek. So they determined we can drive the ship right in there they, 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 as, they, as they looked and they saw that. So it says in verse 40, so when they had taken up, 
literally the Greek is they cut away the anchors. So they get the four anchors on the stern, which are holding them from moving forward. They cut those four anchors off, it says here. And it says they committed themselves to the sea. They let the, the sea drive them towards land. They loose the rudder bands because when they are out in the storm, they tied the rudders in position because they didn't want them flopping around, taking them in a crazy direction or turning the ship around. They loose the rudder bands because they want to steer now as they can into this place. They loosed, uh, the, they, they loosed the rudder bands and they hoisted again the mainsail, which is the foresail. They want that to, to drag them forward. And it says, and made toward shore. They must, what a beautiful day that was. And falling into a place where two seas met, again, a sandbar where it comes together, they ran the ship aground. They just run it in there. The wind's driving it. They got the foresail up. They've taken out the grain. The ship is higher. And the fore part of the ship stuck fast and remained unmovable. That is a good feeling after 14 days of going up and down. They, they stick into the sandbar, but, it says, the hinder part of the ship, the transom, is broken with the violence of the waves. Just when they got their hopes up, the ship is stuck, they see the land, the back of the ship starts to fall apart. No, it's good. There's good purpose in it, we're going to say. We need some boards. Uh, so the back of the ship starts to break apart. And the soldiers then, they counseled with one another, let's kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim out and escape. So the soldiers, if you had a prisoner, and if, if you had a band of 30 soldiers, and 20 of your prisoners escaped, 20 of those soldiers were put to death. If these are criminals headed to the arena in Rome, they said, what the heck? We're, they're, you know, we can deliver them. The Roman soldiers were allowed to bring the guy, they, like bounty hunters, they could bring him back dead or alive, and they were still safe. It's only when they escaped that they were in trouble. So the soldiers now, you can hear the enemy, kill him. Kill him, Satan's whispering in the air. The soldiers decide to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim out and escape. But the centurion, Brother Julius, the new convert, willing to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that they which could swim should cast themselves first into the sea and get to land, required of every Roman soldier. You had to be able to swim before you were sworn into the military. A Roman soldier had to be able to swim across a river if he needed to do that to prosecute his assignment. So it says, those of you who can swim, you cast yourselves in, make it to land. And it says then, and the rest, some on boards, surfboards, and some on broken pieces of the ship. It was important for that transom to get broken apart. And so it came to pass that they escaped, all of them safe to land. And sometimes that's how we get out of our storms, isn't it? Some of us are swimming. Some of us are you know, with a, with stroke after stroke, and some of us come floating on something we're holding on to, but we get out of it, you know. And you, and you look at this, you think, okay, Lord, what's the, what's the deal here? You know, there's a lot of detail here. You're saying a lot of things. And certainly for you and I, when we look at storms in the scripture, there's always application. There's a type, there's a picture. But this storm is a storm that's so great it says in verse 20, all hope. This is a no hope storm. Paul had been in three storms before this. He'd already written 2 Corinthians 11. None of those storms compared with this storm. This is a different kind of storm altogether. And it's made of north, northeast, two different winds. Typhoon, sometimes the enemy, the spirits come at us in more than one direction. 
And it says, it's like no previous storm any of them had been through, this Eurocliden, Eurocliden. And this storm is a no-hope storm. You know, look, all of us get in storms. We read, you know, Peter walked on the water. We understand the storms. Okay, we get to that. We can kind of watch those storms. And I understand the storm deal. I've taken Storm 101, Storm 102, you know. But this is Storm 103. And then, Lord, I want the correspondence course. I, I just want to study storms. And because I study storms, I'll be able to get out of the storm. And this is a storm that no one escapes by studying storm. This is a storm where the only way out is strictly the grace of Almighty God. This is a storm you get in and you start to realize, well, we got, got too much. You start to throw out the tackle. You, see, you know, you realize in this storm, I thought this was important. I thought that you know, stuff in your life, you know, your priority, no, that ain't important. And it still remains dark and the waves keep coming. And then you think, well, you know, you've got to get, you know, Lord, I'll fast for three days. You haven't eaten, you know, the, the sun and, and the stars. There's no way to get your bearings. It's a hopeless storm. They come. They come. Job said, after he had lost all of his sons and all of his daughters, all of his land, all of his flocks. He said, Lord, I wish I was dead. I wish I had never been born. Not hyperbole. He, 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 he's in a storm that's so deep. And God's not given him the reason. He doesn't know what's going on behind the scenes. And storms can be that way. Why does God allow those storms? The storms that are no hope storms. The storms that come in our lives when something beyond what we've experienced in storms comes. You think this is way deeper than any water I've ever been in. God, there's no sun. There's no, God, where are you? There's no sense of your presence. Did I sin? Am I really going to hell and I only thought I was going to heaven? Lord, what is this all about? And I don't know. I don't know why he lets those things come sometimes. You know, we want to glean maybe part of that answer from the next chapter. But there are those storms we have to get into and it doesn't matter how many storms we've studied, because survival in those storms has nothing to do with how tight you can hold on to God. They are solely survived because of how tight he holds on to you. On the other side of those storms, you have not contributed. It hasn't been because of your faith. It hasn't been because of your strength. You were without hope. All the hope you thought, oh God, you know, I trust you. I did this, Lord. I love to sing your songs. We think we have all this hope. And all of a sudden, kind of it starts dwindling. And it withers away. And it's gone like mercury. Just run away. It's gone. We can be in that place. There's people in this room tonight that are in a hopeless storm. I want to say this, and I don't want to be trite, but you're going to come through. I don't know what you're going to look like by the time that happens, but you're going to come through. I can only say that because he holds on to us. He holds on to us, not because we hold on to him. I can only say that because... You know, you have a little kid, your grandkid, you're walking across the parking lot. They're not safe because they're holding you. They're safe because you're holding them. 
And if you're in one of those storms this evening and they come, Paul tells Timothy, look, when we're faithless, he remains faithful. You know, think of Jesus saying, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to sift you as wheat. But I pray for you that your faith fail not. Had nothing to do with him. When you're converted or restored, strengthen your brethren. If this evening you're in one of those storms right now, you know, look, they're, they're the, it's the kind of journey that puts your heart in a place where you realize all the people I know can't help me. Everybody I thought and in the past who's given me scriptures and been an encouragement today, I look on their faces, they look the same way I do. I ain't getting nothing from the horizontal, even though that's important in the body of Christ. Every member, you know, every joint, every ligament, we're, we're supplies, we're supposed to build one another up in love. There come storms where God has something to say to us where there is no horizontal supply that's going to lift off of us what feels like is drowning us. Because in that place, we will learn there is a vertical that never changes. And you don't have to see it like the sun and the stars. It's there. And you and I can believe God. We can believe him. That's easy for me to say right now. If you're one of those people that are in one of these no-hope storms. But if you are... Tommy come, musicians come, but if you are, why don't you stand right now? No hope. You're just getting bashed. And you're listening and thinking, oh, the study's from me. How did he know? You're in a, you're in a no hope storm. Get to our brothers there, pray for them, somebody. Don't ask him what the deal is. Get to our brother back there. Pray for him. Get to our sister here. You guys, get to them. Pray for them. Don't ask him what the problem is. Whatever the storm is. Here, get to our brother here. Pray for him. Over there. Here. Let's bow our hearts. Lord. Lord, the days come upon us. Sometimes the closest people to us, Lord, are unable to provide what we need so deep down inside. And sometimes, Lord, we feel like we're suffocating, we're drowning. And sometimes we wonder where you are. Sometimes we wonder if you're angry with us. Sometimes we wonder if we've done something that has disqualified us, Lord. And Lord, in those places, it is you, Lord, we are wholly dependent upon. It is your love that never fails. It is your power that never wanes. It is your grace that never ceases to flow upon us undeserved. It is your mighty arm. underneath the everlasting arms. So, Lord, you know each son and daughter here, Lord. 
can study through the chapter, Lord, but it, the word points us to you, Lord. This speaks to our hearts about you, Lord, how sovereign you were over all of this, Lord. Would you, Lord, rescue everyone who stood here this evening, Lord, from their present circumstances. We know you've rescued us eternally, Lord. And you've given us a logic that he who spared not his own son, how shall he not give us with him all things freely? Give us your grace tonight, Lord. You hear our hearts. Thank you so much for those who would gather around us and pray for us, Lord. But all the appeals that are being made are to you, Lord Jesus. And we believe you, Lord. Let's stand. Let's worship. Oh, my dreams suffer on. 